What is fascism? Could fascism happen here in America? Stand back and stand by. What can we do to stop it? You can't love your country only when you win. You're listening to The Other F Word, a series all about fascism in America on Mornings with Serlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us today in our series on fascism, the other F word, Sarah Kenzior, the author of the brand new book, They Knew, which is out September the 13th. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? <laughs> I mean, I'm okay. Uh, you know, there's a lot. It's a lot of process, right? So it's a like, lot. you know, they threw in monkeypox. And then yesterday I read a story about monkeys that are attacking babies. And I was like, okay, this is... um really like rapture um yeah and it feels a little end timesy but but for the most part i'm okay right like i mean i'm speaking to you from (laughs) st louis where we just had the once in five thousand year flood so yeah a bit raptury right here feels a little bit like that so um Mm. yeah that's just to set the stage so in the series (laughs) on fascism we've talked to jason stanley we've talked to ruth ben gatt malcolm nance um, and so I wanted to talk to you a bit about institutional accountability today, because we've sort of laid out throughout the course of the week what fascism is, how it's manifesting here in the United States, how it compares to other examples throughout history, around the world, why we need to be concerned. Um, and you have been ringing the bell, like the warning bell, for like over five years. You've been correct um, about like most things when it comes to um, the failures of our institutions to recognize the threat and address it and hold people accountable in this particular moment. um, What do we, what do our institutions need to be doing to address, uh, address the um, crimes, alleged crimes um, and corruption that they're not doing? I want to start there because that's where I feel like it's like, We've laid out the problem over Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I want to talk about what we should be doing that we're not. Yeah, I mean, quite a lot. Uh, (laughs) You know, the first thing is they need to acknowledge the severity of the crisis. They need to acknowledge the roots of the crisis. Like what I've seen from our officials to the extent that they try to pursue accountability at all is they limit it, um, you know, to one man in one day, to Trump and January 6th. They have played down uh, the atrocities committed by that administration. And they have also ignored uh, or denied the structural problems that led to Trump getting into office to begin with. A lot of this has to do with transnational organized crime. It has to do with, um, you know, the precepts that Robert Mueller uh, somewhat ironically laid out in Mm -hmm. in 2011, where you saw an intersection of organized crime, state corruption, and corporate corruption merging globally along with digital media to create new levels of crises. I think almost never see our leaders acknowledging this, acknowledging things like kleptocracy um, or white collar crime or so on and so forth. So one, I just wish that the problem itself would be laid out because you can't 
fight something that you don't, if you don't understand what it is. I think they're worried it'll terrify Americans, but I can assure them that Americans are already terrified by all the uh, rapture-like uh, phenomena that have been occurring. Um, so yeah, that's the first step is just honesty. And then the second is they need to you know, move much faster. They need to act with urgency because while we're looking at these crises of the past and of the recent past, the individuals who uh, perpetrated them are still active right now. They're still running around right now. They're still trying to destroy the country right now. So we don't have time, you know, for Merrick Garland or the DOJ or whomever uh, to suddenly decide uh, to make a move. It feels there's a lot of hand wringing going on. That's the word I keep going back to because I feel like there's all of this. I mean, I, I saw analysis yesterday that was like the DOJ is, you know, considering and thinking through if they would able be able to win on appeal and i'm like what you what you want to you're you're now you're now basically like unless we are able to 100 percent withstand appeal we won't we won't bring any charges like is that true in in cases where it's just a regular black person because i don't i don't believe that's generally especially with all of this evidence it's like we couldn't yes. prove it we have all of this evidence. you have trump on tape you got trump um, you know, you get behind the scenes video, you have all of his staffers testifying. I mean, there's so much evidence feels like it's almost like a cop out in, in, oh, in 100%. Do you see, are you reading it that way? Do you feel the same way you did with the Robert Mueller investigation? Because, um, you were the one that was sort of telegraphing before we even got to the bar letter that it didn't seem like there, it was going to result in real accountability do you have those same worries when you're looking at the Department of Justice now? Yes, I have the same worries. It's the same template. It's the same pattern. It's also what um, Cyrus Vance did uh, in New York when dealing with uh, charges against Trump and the Trump Organization. There, um, what is alarming is that institutional actors working for the United States should not have to be convinced to protect their country. They also should not have to go on this search for buried evidence, hidden evidence, when the crimes were committed in plain sight, when they were planned on the internet, when the people who committed the crimes have confessed to them multiple times, sometimes on television. You know, Trump has confessed to obstruction of justice, for example, twice on television, once back in 2017 to Lester Holt, who then doesn't even bring up that. They're trying to mar collective memory. They're trying to confuse people through legalese and pretexts and excuses. And they're trying to complicate something pretty simple, which is that this is an autocratic takeover. It's a devastation of our rights. It's an annihilation of civil rights and voting rights and an annihilation of the mechanisms that we as citizens have to potentially turn all this around. And they've mm. been steadily bulldozing those mechanisms of accountability uh, for years predating Trump, going back to Citizens United, the, the partial repeal of the VRA, et cetera. But obviously it's accelerating you know, very quickly now and they want to move it even faster. And meanwhile, you know, we're dealing with COVID, we're dealing with climate crises. Like we, as a body of citizens have been severely weakened and they're taking advantage of that to make transfers of wealth, to make illegal moves on power. It's such an obvious crisis. I think no matter where you are on the political spectrum, I think even the Trump voters understand that, you know, we as Americans, we are all 
while living um, in an urgent crisis that is not being responded to with the urgency or patriotism or honor that is required of officials uh, who truly are, are working in the interest of the American public. It's, it's such an apt point. I mean, one of the things I think a lot about um, as we have been learning over the course of the week about fascism is not just how the big lie fits into this, how um, the corruption that you're talking about fits into this, um, but also just setting up that, you know, our institutions are unable to address the needs and that only me, I'm one leader, I can fix it. The I alone can fix it idea. How dangerous is it, given the fact that, like, we're dealing with myriad existential crises? It'd be different if, like, okay, we were, like, trying to, like, I don't know, reduce the deficit or something. Like, if that was our only problem. But right now, as you said, you just survived floods. There are monkeys. There's monkeypox. There's COVID. Um, We don't have a COVID funding bill. I think it's real cute that everybody's, like, worried about monkeypox. And, like, hey, guys, stay focused. There's another virus that is continuing to mutate that is killing people every day. Um, And we still don't have the funding for the fall for that. But um, because of some of this corruption you're talking about. So so talk a bit about why you see the the what the Trump sort of folks and their ilk, why you see that as fascist, why you see that as um, an existential threat to what we are doing here, which is democracy, right? Having our government and our elected leaders address the crises and issues that we need them to. And we, we can't do that under the current situation. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Trump folks, I'm thinking of the high up elite, very wealthy operatives, um, you know, that are hijacking our country and and decimating democracy, Um, because I think, honestly, the voters don't play much of a role because they're steamrolling voting rights, Um, you know, so regardless of who you're voting for, and you should still vote, but, you know, we have to be honest about what's transpired here. Like we've lost uh, many, many points of leverage and one of those is voting. But in terms of the elite um, operatives, there's a variety of things going on. There are theocrats, you know, who want to, uh, you know, create, make the United States, um, you know, a mostly like, Christian fascist sort of state. There's other variations on this theme. There are kleptocrats. There are people who are just in it for the money. There are accelerationalists like Steve Bannon, uh, who just want to destroy everything, you know? And so when it comes to like, is this fascist? Sometimes I worry about there being fascism, um, you know, but the thing is, is that I worry more about there being destruction, about there being wars, partitioning, et cetera, about the United States falling apart into a variety of oligarch fiefdoms, you know, ruled by corrupt uh, individuals, because it's just easier to control uh, a body of people this enormous and a landmass this enormous when it's balkanized. Um, And so I can, you know, I see that coming around the bend. The difference between Trump and a typical fascist leader is that a fascist leader tends to have loyalty to the state which he is representing. And in fact, he wants to be the representation of the state. He wants to embody the state. He wants to expand the state. You know, you see that with with Vladimir Putin uh, invading Ukraine. That's typical fascism. Trump has no loyalty to the United States. And many of the people in his circle also have no loyalty to the United States. To them, the state is just something to sell. It's just something to strip down and sell for parts um, to foreign or domestic bidders. 
And that's what I'm worried about even more than I am about um, the sort of traditional mode of autocracy we're seeing certainly in Russia, also in, in places like Hungary, increasingly in Poland, this is a global phenomenon. Um, I'm worried about full-fledged violent uh, you know, warfare, especially because we are one of the most heavily armed countries in the world. One of the things that you said that is actually making me think of Paul Manafort and Roger Stone um, is related to one of the things we we're talking to Ruth Ben-Yad about, which is um, if you think about the work of Paul Manafort and Roger Stone before they even, you know, became the Trump campaign people, um, their work was for autocrats. Their work was to destroy democracies. <laughs> yes. um, you know, uh, are they doing that here? Is that like sort of the, the, the playbook that is being applied to, to the United States. Yes, absolutely. I mean, they did that in their firm, which was nicknamed the Torturer's Lobby, going all the way back to the early 80s. Uh, they both were close to Trump. They were close to Trump mentors, uh, Trump's mentor, Roy Cohn. Uh, you know, this is a tightly knit inner circle that's been operating steadily uh, since the early Reagan era and, and, and to some extent before. And they've actually lived long enough to see their, their plans uh, come to fruition. So yeah, the model that Manafort in particular uh, was attempting to use on Ukraine uh, that they used to enable other dictatorships around the world, um, other mafia states around the world, that is what they were doing with Trump uh, in 2016 and afterwards. You know, they're shooting for kleptocracy, for mafia state rule above all. You know, I, I think that that sometimes gets lost because people are looking for analogs, you know, with Hitler or Stalin. Um, they're certainly looking at the United States's history of white supremacy as they should, you know, because we always have had selective autocracy. We always have had laws that were differently enforced depending on the color of your skin, uh, depending at certain times in our country's history on your gender, although actually now living in Missouri, um, I have different laws due to my gender. Uh, you know, so there, there are things to look at that are more intimately familiar, but it's these these mafia alliances, the presence of organized crime and the way that organized crime turned into just sort of baseline corruption, white collar uh, crime that people don't even recognize as such. And that, you know, to kind of go back to the beginning of the conversation is because our institutions have facilitated it. They have allowed it. They have let that dark money machine thrive. And that is one of the reasons they don't want to look at it because it means looking into the mirror. You know, this is not a, a partisan problem. This is a problem of elite corrupt operatives, uh, you know, hijacking the reins of power, uh, whether corporate or, or governmental for a very long time. Um, and that's the thing. That's another thing that frustrates me is like, you know, folks like Stone, uh, Manafort, uh, you know, Trump, Bannon and Flynn to some extent, Giuliani, certainly, they've been operating like this in the open for decades on end. You know, they've been subject of previous uh, federal, state, local probes for decades on end. There is no way that when uh, this became the Trump campaign team in 2016, that people, uh, officials in power did not know what this meant, what the ramifications of this would be. And yet they let it happen, even mm. with all the evidence out there. They didn't even feel an urge to be honest with the public and warn the public. They didn't even warn through rhetoric with the exception of Hillary Clinton, who did warn people, uh, at least rhetorically. Yeah, I mean, what, one of the things that, you know, backs up what you just said is the fact that they were investigating both for Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but they only told us about one of those investigations, 
um, both when James Comey came outside and was like, hey, guys, I'm going to have a whole press conference today to announce the fact that we're not going to charge Hillary Clinton, but I'm going to go on a whole rant about how she's really bad. She's really terrible. It was also terrible. But again, we're not charging her. Oh, we're not supposed to do this press conference, but I'm doing it because, you know, otherwise it would have been leaked to Fox News. And it was leaked to Fox News anyway. Um, and then that's not even the letter a week before vote, um, the, the, the election day in 2016. I'm not, I'm not upset about it still. You can totally tell by the sound of my voice that I'm just really not holding on to that at all. Uh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm totally over it. To- totally. Totally. Um, one of the other things um, we've been talking about this week as well is accountability. So we've been watching the January 6th hearings. In a lot of ways, my expectations have been far exceeded. I didn't I don't know what they were going in. I felt kind of like the expectations were people were setting them way too like way too high. They were like they have to come out with like blockbuster information. It needs to be all brand new. We need Donald Trump on tape, you know, on video looking at the camera saying I'm Donald Trump and I have. I'm going to order the insurrection. Like, I'm going to do a coup. Like, we need that. That's what we're going to need if we, unless we have him on tape saying, I'm Donald Trump. Here's my social security number, and I'm going to confess the crime. It, like, the, it, you know, it'll be too boring, and it, it, it'll be a waste of time. And I was like, I don't really actually think we need more going in. I feel like we know plenty. If they lay it out clearly for the American public, people will realize how close we came to catastrophe. Um they far exceeded my my expectations. They have given us new. They have given us blockbuster. How are you processing what you're seeing over the course of the hearings? Are they at least, as a part of this larger institutional system, um, doing what they need to do as a committee to help us even go start going down the path of towards accountability? Yeah, the hearings are a positive development. I mean, any hearings on on state crime, state corruption that are public, especially, and that have live testimony are deeply valuable. And we've seen this throughout American history. We saw this, uh, you could look at the Kefauver uh, mafia hearings in the 1950s, all the hearings on corruption um, from the 1970s, you know, some of which led to Nixon's resignation. Like this is what they should have done a long time ago. You know, the worst thing about the hearings is the time lag because a lot of it just continues what they began with the second impeachment of Trump in February 2021, which was entirely based on public domain evidence because Trump did, in fact, announce and confess the crimes and, mm-hmm. you know, his uh, cohort did as well. So they were able to impeach him without having witness testimony. They wanted to have witness testimony, but that was struck down the minute Lindsey Graham suggested that Pelosi uh, should testify and then and she seemed to have, have torpedoed that impeachment hearing, which was only four days long. So I really wish they had picked up that mantle earlier. It seemed to take a while for them to get permission to do this. But now that they're doing it, yeah, you know, they're doing their job. I have reservations about Liz Cheney. I don't think that she's the hero they're making her out to be. I think she's doing her baseline civic responsibility. And that just showcases how terrible the rest of the Republican Party is. Um, I have reservations about the fact that some of the accomplices uh, to this crime to the broader crime of the Trump administration, like Ivanka, Jared, and Bill Barr, are being presented as witnesses. But I think the fact that we finally, um, you know, have restored the collective memory of the American public that, yes, you really did see that on television. This really is a huge deal. It's a very big deal. When the Capitol is attacked, it's a very big deal. When the president plans a coup with his crime cult, like we should not just sit back and accept that and think that's normal and move along 
long. And the other thing I think it's done that's really positive is it's put pressure on the DOJ. And I'm sure the DOJ will, will deny this, but you have you know very high ratings for these hearings. You have people in Congress uh, pressuring the DOJ in part because of the hearings. We're all seeing it again. And it's raising the question of, hey, you know, this is incredibly dangerous to the basic existence uh, of our free society. Why in the world are you waiting so long to round these people up who have confessed to their crimes, who are on tape threatening people, you know, all of this horrific evidence? Why in the world would you abet that through your complacency, which over time turns into complicity? So I'm very glad that those kind of questions are being raised. I mean, you, you've been saying um, since the beginning that part of, part of um, our issue is that, like, it, we're too slow. <laughs> it's too slow. Um, and, it, and it feels like there's so much hand-wringing over whether to investigate. And then the Department of Justice is like, oh, it turns out there's all this evidence that the committee is showing the American public that directly links um, things back to Trump. And they're surprised by this fact. And you're like, Harry, the heck up. <laughs> um, and you you also, um, we have five more minutes. So I want to um, quote from your Twitter feed, which is always fire. So if you're not following Sarah on Twitter, you should definitely rectify that situation immediately. Um, but one of the things that you've always said, I mean, and, and it's related to the accountability piece here, right? So we're seeing through um, maybe the Department of Justice, but certainly through the committee, um, that we're attempting to get accountability. But part of what the other part of what we have to do is understand our history, understand the history of our country and other authoritarian regimes so that we don't we don't let this happen. Like we don't lose the democracy. And you tweeted one reason Trump got into office was denial or ignorance of history. This is November 8th, 2020, you guys. Okay, so this is right after the, the election is called for Joe Biden. This is Sarah. Um, one reason Trump got into office was denial or ignorance of history, how fascism rises, the emergence of the far right movements globally in the 21st century, and especially the selective autocracy always practiced against marginalized racial and ethnic groups throughout the United States history. Forget this history at your own peril and at the peril of the world. We have defeated an aspiring autocrat at the polls. We have not dismantled the corrupt conditions that made him possible and that will make successors possible. Trump was the culmination. <laughs> he was not a fluke. Talk about um, what has changed since you tweeted this November 8th, 2020, and what hasn't? Like, how are we doing? Yeah, I mean, hearing that makes me feel so sad because I had yeah. more hope back then, uh, in part because, you know, Biden and the Democrats were running on a platform of accountability. And they were speaking very openly about the need to address this history and the need to make massive structural reforms. You know, things like expanding the Supreme Court, for example, uh, were being discussed and they really haven't fulfilled almost any of the platform in the most rudimentary sense. Like they didn't even get rid of DeJoy at the post office. We still don't get mail. Um, we're dealing with disasters like COVID, et cetera. But it's also public expectations have shifted. People are expecting less because they've been given less. And I think that they should continue expecting more from their officials. They should expect them to fulfill their promises. They should demand that they do so because we, as, as, as regular people, we can't do a citizen's arrest. You know, we can't uh, you know, handle um, a lot of these crises at the upper levels because we don't have those particular mechanisms of power. So I really wish uh, that they would just simply 
do their job. I think Americans honestly have been doing the best they can. We're dealing with atrocious circumstances. And I think if we have some actual leadership and some bravery and some uh, you know, commitment to sustaining our democracy, that, that people will you know, pull through, that they will work hard. The dissolution comes from the time lag. It comes from the inertia and chaos that's you know, simultaneously uh, surrounding us. So yeah, I wish we could kind of get back into the mindset in November 2020, where we all felt um, like better things were possible. I want to go back to that optimistic Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad that that's the optimistic me, because it really wasn't all that optimistic. No, no. Well, I mean, you, you had a little hope. You had a glimmer. It was like a glimmer. Oh, sure. Well, it's a I big a deal to vote out an autocrat. It's no, a that's really why we were, big deal. That's why people were dancing on top of cars. I mean, think about that day, the amount of joy people in the country felt. It really did. People really did go outside as if they were celebrating, um, you know, voting out an autocrat, a dictator. We've seen, like, yeah. you know, if and we had if we, if we had statues we could topple, we would have done that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, that's what we were doing. People, I mean, we were dancing to Beyonce on top of cars. That's what our version of toppling statues is because um, we don't have, well, I guess we could, we, we were toppling Confederate statues right before that. Yes, so, and um, I think that that was, you know, <laughs> that was the precursor, so. right? That was a precursor, <laughs> right? To, to, to what we saw on election day. Sarah Kenzie, or author of They Knew, which is out September the 13th, but also Hiding in Plain Sight, um, another bestseller that you should absolutely read, and The View from Flyover Country, three books, and I believe two of them are already bestsellers, so I'm sure the new one will do wonderfully. Thank you so much for being here. Follow Sarah Kenzior on Twitter if you are not already. Um, that Rectify that immediately. Um, thank you so much for being here for our special series on fascism. I've learned a lot today, just like every day this week. Thank you again. Well, thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.